Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Hey, we thought we'd do something different this morning. We thought we'd sit during the sermon. You all stand. Are we good? If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers. To my direct left is Elijah Daly. He's one of the, he's our teaching pastor here on our staff. And then to my far left is Michael DeFazio, who's an elder here, but as well as a Bible college uh, professor at Ozark Christian College. And if you've been visiting, or if you are visiting today, we just completed, the three of us completed a uh, series where we went through five messages called What About? Answering the questions that people who don't attend church or no longer want to attend church, seem to be asking of Christians, questions that deserve an answer. And instead of this being a flex series where we talk about how right we are and how wrong they are, it's not intended that at all. It's like, how do we answer the question that people are asking, especially when the question comes down to, can the character of God be trusted? And so I'm going to encourage you, not because I think we did such an amazing job. I think there are questions worth listening and getting an answer for in today's world. So if you haven't heard any of them, we'd encourage you to go to our YouTube page, our podcast, and uh, just listen as you can to the questions that the world seems to be asking Christians that we should answer because we believe that we're unashamed of the gospel of God because it's the power of salvation to all who believe. And so because of that, we've built this series. Now, two weeks ago, when Elijah spoke a message on what about those who have been hurt by the church, you might remember he teased us at the beginning with the question that he liked to ask in the dormitory that caused outrage. Do you remember he brought that up? And do you remember how sly it was and almost heartless that he wouldn't tell us what the question was? And he told you you had to buy him a cup of coffee to hear the question. No, you don't. I have the question. The question that Elijah loved to rock the dorm with is simply this. Would you rather be as handsome as Mark Christian or as skinny as Michael DeFazio? <laughs> and talk amongst yourselves at another time, okay? We would be very interested in the answer. All right. Now, on the serious questions, we have a number of questions that were sent in by people. So if you weren't here two weeks, we've been asking for questions to be sent into a Google number. Uh, we went through and cultivated those questions. Great questions. Appreciated all of them. There wasn't a silly one in the whole group. Well, there was. It came from staff. We dismissed those, and we took the real questions. Let me tell you, we're not going to answer all of the questions, but we're not being evasive. Some of the questions we need to answer in a one-on-one -on -one format. And some, uh, we're going to contact the people who ask the question and say, hey, we'd like to sit down and talk with you and answer your question, and we'll do that as quickly as possible. Others, we felt, fit the series, and that is about the character of God, and can God be trusted in what God is doing in our world today? And so those questions we've chosen to do, we've put them in order. I hope you'll be able to see that by answering the first question, it helps us answer the second, the third and onward as we go. And so I'm going to pose the questions and kind of moderate this. I'll answer a couple myself, so the easier ones. And I'm going to give the, the questions to these guys. And we went through them and said, who wants to open the answer? Uh, Elijah may open, and then Michael and I are going to contribute. And this is how we're going to handle it. So here's the first question we want to go with this morning. Uh, this will go to Michael. Why was Jesus' death and resurrection required to redeem the world out of sin? Or why do we need his blood to wash away our sin? 
No, we love this question, and um, if it wasn't asked, we probably would have planted it just because we like to talk about it. Not really. The questions are all legit. But we all talked about how, man, we could spend all morning on this, and it wouldn't be time wasted. And we wanted to let you guys know that we have a serious plan for the fall where we're going to walk. We're spend a couple of months walking through different descriptions and images for salvation that the Bible gives us. And really, it's just reflecting on this question, like how does Jesus' death save us? Why was Jesus' death necessary? So this is a bit of a kind of a preview you of that, I guess. And we'll try to stick specifically to this question, why the blood of Jesus? Um, and it may be helpful in thinking about this to think about, you know, visiting the doctor. Let's say you've got some symptoms that are frustrating you. You got a headache or maybe knee pain or your tummy ache or something. And you go into the doctor and you tell them what's going on because you want the doctor to give you a diagnosis and then uh, hopefully some medication. And so let's say you go in and the doctor says, well, actually for this, you need antibiotics or for this, you need surgery. And the question is like, well, why do I need surgery for this? And the answer is, well, because the nature of your problem is such that surgery is the solution or the nature of your problem is such that antibiotics is the solution. And that's one way of thinking about this. Like the blood of Jesus is the solution because of the nature of our problem. We are in a situation, we, are in a pro- we have a problem. Like we aren't as we should be. We have a problem and it is uh, something that is solved by the blood of Jesus. Now it doesn't always make sense immediately because much like when you go to the doctor, you're thinking about your symptoms and your doctor's thinking about the underlying condition. So the condition is not necessarily on your mind, you just want your head to stop hurting. Kind of like with with faith, like we don't come to Jesus thinking, you know, I think I'm actually missing out on unbroken fellowship with the Father who created me for a love relationship now and through all eternity. (laughs) We don't think that. We think, no, like I'm, I'm sad or I don't understand something, or I have this habit that I can't kick, or you know, there's something wrong with my life and I, and I wanna fix that. And the gospel says, symptom, but let's get at the underlying issue. And the underlying issue is, you were created for a life-giving relationship with your perfect creator God, but your rebellion has severed that relationship and it needs to be fixed, it needs to be reconciled. And this is where, if I could add one more piece to the question, uh, one of the things I appreciate so much about this series, Mark, is that you have consistently said, we want to trace this all back to the character of God. If you understand who God is, this God that we are made for a relationship with, then the, the atoning blood of Jesus will make more sense. God is perfectly loving and perfectly just, and he experiences no tension between those two. It looks to tension like us, looks like tension to us because we aren't as perfect as him. But the cross really is the way in which those come together. So God loves you and wants a relationship with you, but you have sinned against him. You have become a part of the problem. You, have, you may be a victim, but you have also been a perpetrator of sin. And it wouldn't be just really or loving for God to just look past your sin. Maybe you think, well, can't he just look past it? Can't he just let it go? Like think about some of the terrible things that will happen to children today and ask if a good, perfectly loving, perfectly just judge would say, oh, it's okay, we're just gonna go, we're gonna let it go. No, there has to be a penalty for that. So God's justice demands a penalty, and his love seeks out in the same way, and the cross is the resolution of, of what looks to us like tension. I think this is why the Bible says that, that, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, because God always has related to us through the cross, this perfect coming together of his love and justice. So hopefully that answers the question. We needed it because our sin separated us from God and the penalty had to be paid. Yeah, and I would only add on to that. Um, simply that, you know, I think of an analogy, which again, all analogies break down at some point, but I think of an analogy even with my son. You know, if my son does something wrong or before he does something wrong sometimes, I'm like, hey, if you do this, you're gonna have to go to your room, you know? Now, of course, 
Sometimes that makes it so he doesn't, but most of the time he ends up doing it, you know? So what happens in that moment? There's two options, right? Either I can send him to his room and there is a separation between him and I, or I don't and I'm a liar. And on top of that, now I have allowed a sort of reality into our family that's going to become destructive toward the expectations that are now set up in this home of, of, how we, of who we are and how we behave and, and who we become. And so th- to me, this is a, a similar type of aspect. Like at some level, there, we have actually offended God in a way, uh, not just offended God, but broken his world in a way that we can see that all around us. And so we have been, there's a separation now between us that, that proves both God's holiness and goodness, uh, but also uh, the fact that like there is a sort of penalty for what has gone on. And the cross really is the solution to these problems. Now, what I also wanna emphasize is if you look at scripture, this is the story that it's been telling. Like if you think of the first five books of the Bible, right? Like we are separated from God by sin and then it's just over and over God trying to find these little ways to get us a little bit closer to him, a little bit closer, a little bit closer. And finally he comes through the person and work of Jesus and now he indwells us. The whole point of what God is trying to recreate and restore is our relationship and our, in the presence that we experience with him. And it's so important to understand even in regards to this question, a penalty has to be paid and a relationship has to be stored and the cross does it all. So just gonna, this is gonna be the refrain all morning and it's been for the entire series. It's important that we keep in context. One of the things we can do when it comes to why did God have to do it this way? Ask him. He didn't ask us. He, if you believe in a God who loves you and is good for you and sent Jesus to show his love for us, then what he chose to do for us, I tend to have to fight myself, but I wanna believe that God knew what I needed and he gave me his best because he's been nothing but good, Amen. And so we're gonna always refrain is, what does it say about the character of God before it ever ask myself my opinion on how I wish it would have gone? Because I always tell my best friends, if I ran the world, it'd be awesome. No, it would not. So I need a God who can lead me as, as I try to lead in whatever way I do. The second question is a big, big, heavy question. And so I need everyone to just take a deep breath. I mean, like, really, because this question is gonna make every single one of us uncomfortable, but it's a good question that I'm, that we're unafraid to answer, but we need you to listen to the entirety of the answer. This one goes to Elijah and and God bless him. He said, I'll be willing to lead on this one. So uh, we're not just throwing it to him. Uh, He is thoughtful about this. We loved his answer. And we said, how about you lead on this? The question that we received is, can gay people be Christians? And if so, will they go to heaven? So obviously you can hear in this, there's two questions, right? And I think it's important to understand what's being asked here. I think the first question really leads into the second. Uh, the first question is, can a gay person be a Christian? And I think the reality is that if you replace gay with pretty much any other identifier, uh, mailman, murderer, doctor, scripture is very, very clear about this, right? Like any, anyone can be a Christian. Anyone can. Like this is open to every single person who is willing to call Jesus king, who wants to have a relationship with him. That is available to them. Now, as we enter into this conversation, I also wanna just recognize like this is a sensitive topic for our culture because it is personal, right? Like this is like, I'm sure there are people holding their breath, like a yes and a no is gonna mean something. And so I wanna be clear about this, but I also wanna be pastoral. Like these, these are hard things. And so the question really is not whether a gay person can be a Christian. The question is, can a homosexual lifestyle exist while you also call Jesus king? Now, the answer to that question is ultimately, you have to 
look at what the king says. What does the king ask of me? What does the king demand? Because ultimately being a Christian means that Jesus has rule and he has reign in my life. And whatever he asks me to abandon, I abandon. And then whatever he asks me to do and enjoy, I go, I serve, I lean in. And so we look at scripture because we believe scripture contains the words of the king. And even though scripture isn't clear about every single topic and how that applies to us, it is clear about this topic. And what the king says is that we all have desires that may bring us happiness. And homosexuality may be a desire that brings you happiness. It cannot bring you life. And ultimately, whether you have homosexual desires or heterosexual ones that are out of bounds, what he says is that we have these desires that that could bring us pleasure, but if they ultimately bring us death, he he will not allow them to exist in in his people because they perpetuate a, a, a poison that ultimately Again, right, it crushes the family environment, the the goodness and joy and life that Jesus offers us. Because the truth is, if we're being honest, there are way more people sitting in this room right now who struggle with pornography, with premarital sex, with infidelity, you name the sexual sin. Every single one of us have desires that are outside of the bounds of what God calls us to as his people. And that's why it leads to the second question. Now, if you remember, the second question was, can a gay person go to heaven, right? But I think that what they're really asking is, how much sin can somebody have in their life before they're disqualified from a life with the king? And the truth is, you want to know the answer? One sin disqualifies you from a life with the king. God will not allow one drop of hell into heaven. Because the truth is, that is why Jesus is necessary. It will not be by our good works or who we are that we get into, a, into his presence once more to enjoy a life with him, but because he delivers us from our enslavement to sin and death and he gives us and reconciles the relationship that we need with him. That is what God does. Our garments, they're stained, they're filthy. We don't need them washed. We need new ones and that's what Jesus gives us. He clothes us with his own garments. He gives us deliverance from sin. Because sin really is, is making yourself king of your kingdom. It's making reality something it is not and will never be. And what the king demands of us is, to, is that if we're going to call him king, if we're going to give him rule and reign of our life, that we have to get rid of all of those things that ultimately bring death. So the question really is, do you call Jesus king? And if you do, are you letting him exterminate all of that? For all of us, whether you have homosexual desires or heterosexual desires that are simply not in alignment with God's kingdom. The demands of this king are steep. Like he's asking you to pick up a cross and die with him if that's what it takes for you to get rid of these things. He's going to put them to death if you call him king. But the rewards that he offers us, the benefits to be enjoyed, they are unfathomable. And that is what he's inviting all of us to, even if that means taking everything from us in this life in order to prepare us for a true goodness and joy and perfection in the next. Yeah, Elijah, I so appreciate your question. And I'm sitting here, you know, hearing it again. And I just, I, I love, I think knowing you and hearing you answer is such a rich combination, knowing how you treat people and knowing the truth that's coming out and the way those come together. It's just really rich. Um, uh, I, I do want to ask one clarifying question. 
you know, part of the question that was asked is about, you know, can a person get to heaven? And, and a quarter of your response, you're kind of getting at the heart of it, and you're saying one sin disqualifies you. Um, I don't think you're saying, you know, if I sin today and then die, I'm out. I think what you're saying is, and this is what I'm asking to clarify, are you saying that or are you saying, no, my attitude should be, I'm not in on my good works, and so it's not a matter of trying to do, it, do enough, but Jesus is actively getting rid of everything that doesn't fit with him, and so my attitude should be, I want to get rid of all of it. So you're not saying one sin for me today means I, go to, I die tonight and go to hell, but more about like my overall approach. Is that right? Absolutely. I'm saying trust in Jesus is what brings you into his presence for eternity. And ultimately, when you trust in Jesus, he's not going to let any of those desires remain. And over the course of our life, he will continue to put them to death. Um, and we will actively work toward those things, knowing that that eternity, they're all going to be gone. Why not experience eternity now by getting rid of them? You see, and one of the reasons that this question is awkward, and you can all breathe now, okay? Uh, we made it. One of the questions that is awkward is because there are people in here who have family members. And there may even be people in here who are same-sex attracted. We're glad you're here. We don't sit in superiority. Change this question to your sin. That's why the question gets answered. What about a person who's a liar? What about a person who hasn't done anything yet but is plotting every day how they would if they could? Jesus talked to us about the heart issue. And the heart issue is there is not one drop of hell going to be in heaven, which means God's got to fix us because we can't fix ourselves. And one of the beautiful works is not only the atonement that Michael began with of our sins, but the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to put to death those things of the flesh. And so whatever our sin is, we're not going to talk about anybody who's not in the room. Whatever the them is not important, us. How do we listen to this answer and find the character of God proven? And this is a challenge for all of us in our discipleship. Now, the third question is mine, and you're going to say, well, this is an easier question than they got. It's good to be the senior minister. <laughs> what about when you're trying to follow the plans God has written for you, but don't feel close to God anymore, asking for a family member? And I'm glad you're asking. First of all, uh, expect this. There are mountaintop experiences and valley experiences. If Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness being tested, I'm sure he didn't feel a whole lot of closeness in those moments of temptation, trial, and deprivation. So I want to tell you, I, I'm always reminded of what Henry Blackaby said in the book, Experiencing God. He said, if you ever feel distant from God, go back to the last moment or place you were close to him. He's still there. Because we don't lead God places, he leads us places. And what I really simply want to say, because I've talked too long about this point in the previous services, what God is doing around us is God has not given you and I a group of chores he sends us off on that we feel awesome about. God has given us his presence. When we're told to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that is how we relate to God. So I will ask you, what is the area of your personal walk right now that seems deficient, seems distant, seems empty? Is it your mind? Is it your soul? Is it your physicality, your physical response to God? How are you feeling empty from him? And, and drive into that. But the way we drive into that is not by being active. It's by remembering who he is, what he's doing, and what he's calling you into. It's going back to the reason you're a follower of his. If I can say it more simply, I will always be a biological parent to my two boys. No matter what they think of me, I'm always a biological parent. But many times I'm not a father because I don't feel like it. I get distracted. I get empty. 
But what do I do? I remember who my boys are and how much I love them and how much they mean to me. And it re-engages my heart to give to that. And so Michael and I were in a, in a group meeting and I'm gonna throw this to him because Michael shared recently that he has been and gone through a desert period, if you will. Yeah, first of all, of the three of us, you're the least likely to talk too long. So I dispute that. You're, what you're saying is great. Keep talking. Yeah, I, I love this question. Um, I always love this question. And yeah, we were talking the other day, and this isn't a theoretical question for me. I've just been in a little bit of a dry season. And not like deeply dangerous, don't worry about me. It's just one of those seasons where, like the question said, I'm walking with the Lord, I'm leaning on conviction, but I'm not feeling some of the same things I, I sometimes feel. And I always want to start with, man, is there something wrong in my life? Am I experiencing the hand of God's discipline? Do I have unconfessed sin and then deal with it if so. But if not, it's like, okay, this isn't the hand of his discipline. This is the sand of the desert. Like he's taking me somewhere and he's taking me through an experience that is a little bit less, uh, you know, immediately fulfilling. And I always do a couple of things in those moments. One is I, I distrust my feelings. You know, I remember the fact that my feelings in any given moment are not a reliable guide to reality. So I may not feel his presence like I have in the past or might in the future, but that doesn't mean he's not with me. And this is an important thing because we live in a world that tells us to trust our feelings first, and the gospel says the opposite. Also, I remind, I'm, I'm reminded of how important hope is to the Christian story, to, to life with Jesus, to the gospel. And hope means that the best things are out in front of us, you know? And I do think we live in a, in a time and place where we tend to think my immediate needs need to be met right now or the deal that I was offered is not living up to its promises. No, like Jesus didn't promise us, I will make everything awesome for you every moment of your life up until heaven and then forever. No, he promised that he would let us walk through life as we get closer to him and then experience the fulfillment of all of that in eternity. And, you know, we're all using these parenting analogies. I'm reminded a little bit of some of, you know, I'll let my children go through difficult times or I'll put them in situations where something's going to be hard for them. And if they complain, I always just say, well, you're welcome. <laughs> and they don't love that. But you get what I'm saying. I'm saying, no, like I'm helping you get to a place that you couldn't get unless you go through this. And I trust that Jesus, and he's shown himself to me enough to where I trust him through these times. And it doesn't make it easier, but it does because you know that you're walking with someone you can believe in. It's gonna take us in. I hope you can see these. This dovetails right into where we go next. The fourth question that's posed that I'll lead out on is, one statement I hear often from non-believers is, I can't believe in a God who lets evil things happen to innocent people. And the second part of their question is, what are your thoughts on how to discuss this concern? So we want to focus on that. How do you respond to people in a world that wishes like your preacher did? That one week ago, God would have stopped what happened in Houston. Or that in Tulsa this last week, God would have stepped in and intervened and kept that from happening. How can God be good in a world where he doesn't stop all evil? Well, the totality of scripture answers that question primarily that God builds character even in suffering. The sovereignty of God is what you and I must rely on when suffering happens, because it will happen. Jesus warned us about it. The world from the very beginning of the fall has been just encompassed in tragedy. It's a part of the result of sin. Now there are some, some things we bring on ourselves and there's other things that happen to us that are unwarranted. Uh, Michael, you addressed it just in kind of a throwaway comment earlier. It's not like God's up there smiting people. There's times that the consequences of our sin land on us fully. I don't know that you can call that suffering. But there are other moments when we suffer innocently. 
and people around us that we care about suffer innocently and we wonder about the character of God. Go back to what you know about God because I'll tell you this, if you've walked with God, you know enough about God to be able to trust him even when you don't have all the answers. James tells us in James, in the, in the New Testament book, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. No matter the suffering, God does not abandon us. He walks with us. His promise is to be with us always. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. It it will not be pleasurable. It won't always be fun. And sometimes it will be truly devastating. James doesn't say that trials and suffering are not hard. He says, no, hold on to them and find the joy in knowing that when I can't and it makes no sense to me, God is in control and I can trust that God. This always comes back to the character of God. Yeah, I would just add to that as well. Um, there's, a, there's a commentator, Francis Anderson. He, he writes a commentary on the book of Job. And one of the things he says is, um, true words are thin medicine for a man in the depths. And I think at many times when we come to people who are suffering or they're dealing with some of these questions, uh, we, we try to, to rationalize it for them. And sometimes they don't need that from us. Um, and sometimes they do. But ultimately praying that the Spirit would give you the words to understand how to answer those questions, I think is a really meaningful thing. Now, when we look at things that do seem just unexplainable, irrational, random, um, that happen in our world where we're like, I don't see how God could accomplish any good from that. It doesn't make any sense. Again, we have to punt from the fact that we don't know. Like our, our reasoning, our, our mind, our knowledge is limited to our very individual moment. And yet God, who is, knows all things, knows everything that is happening and is involved in every part of it. And so even though we don't know why, we know who is still over the sovereignty aspect. We know who is over. And what I always um, try to lead with when it comes to these types of conversations is something that Tim Keller has once said, which is that even when we don't know the why, even when we don't have those answers, to look at the character of God and trust him, it can happen when we look at the cross. The cross is the emphatic answer. It always is, always will be. That even when we see these things happening, It may not tell us why, but it does tell us this. It is not because God does not care. He sees sin and death and he has taken it upon himself in full and he is putting it to an end. And it will not have the final word in this world. God will. And he is already beginning to redeem all of those things as we look forward to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us in him. Yeah, we, we commented together about how we're always grateful to be able to talk about this very difficult question. And we love how the, the asker is even not just saying, how do I make sense of this, but how do I help others through it? Because many of you know that's, that's when it's really hard, when you're trying to help somebody else in pain. And much like what these guys have said, I think for me, I, I was, you know, for many years, I've, I've been in pursuit of the intellectual explanation that could make someone feel better. <laughs> and I, I came to a came to realization that I can't, I can't find that. Not because, you know, I'm not looking hard enough or I'm not thinking hard enough, but because it's not supposed to. 
I've got an explanation for this that is rationally satisfying to me. You know, I don't believe God, everything happens for a reason, but I do believe anything can be redeemed and, and there are other elements to it. But at the end of the day, I don't think I'm supposed to be able to express that to someone who's in pain. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, it's all good. Okay, great. No, because it's not all good. Suffering's not supposed to resolve because it doesn't belong in our world. And that's actually part of the good news that we were made for a better one. So release yourself from the pressure to find the words to make someone feel better. Like Elijah said, imitate what God has done and be present with people in their pain. That's ultimately what God did in Christ is he's present with us in our pain. And for me in times when I've been in a, you know, terrible darkness, that's what made the most difference is someone showing up and sitting with me or somebody I know giving me a hug or just expressing their presence. So don't underestimate the power of that and be okay with the fact that you're not making the pain go away. You're sitting with people in it. Uh, next question goes to Elijah, and it's a, it's a complicated question. It's a good question, but it's complicated. So I'm going to ask for your, to, if we've lost you, come back and pay attention to the depths of the question because Elijah's going to break it into some pieces and, and answer it fully. Could Jesus' death be big enough to conquer hell in its entirety? And then parenthetically they wrote, maybe my faith is just too big, but I just refuse to believe in a loving God that would send his son to die just for people who believe in him. Seems a little too selfish and prideful for my God and a little more fitting for a God that is described strictly by men and transcribed by men over time. So the initial question here is, um, couldn't it be possible that Jesus' death conquers the entirety of hell? And so at least in regards to that brute question, I want to make sure it's very clear. We absolutely do believe that Jesus' death and his resurrection has conquered hell in its entirety. And the question is whether you are on the part that has been conquered or you are on the part that has been won. But the question is, goes on with this commentary that brings a little bit more insight into what's really being asked, which is this. If Jesus' death and resurrection is so powerful, why can't it just be applied to everybody? Why does it just have to be applied to those people who believe? Like if God loves everybody, won't he give everyone a ticket to heaven? And here's what, where I want to prod a little bit at this question, because I think it's making a false assumption about what heaven is. In our minds, we think of heaven as a place that we're gonna go to, but heaven is not a destination per se. It is a person. We have said this already. God made us for himself and heaven is going to be being with him in the completion and fullness of all that we were created for. And that's what he is inviting us to and that is what he's saving us from and to be for. And so here's the, the issue. If you don't believe in God, if you, don't, if you reject Jesus as king in your life, it will never be heaven for you. It will always be hell. Because you are with someone who is calling for an allegiance that you refuse to give. You are, you are ultimately living with somebody who is a threat to your kingdom and calling you and giving you demands that you simply don't want to, to have in your life. God's salvation absolutely is powerful enough to save all people. But it simply can't save people who hate him because he can't bring people to force people to love him. He's, he invites them into that relationship and heaven will be the full enjoyment of that relationship in all that we have anticipated and waited for. 
Now, there's another part of this question that says, I kind of trust, I mistrust scripture a little bit because this is just written by guys a long time ago. Like, why should we believe some of the things that it says about how, how God makes distinctions between believers and, um, and non-believers? But I want to question that too. Like, why is it that you've accepted what scripture has to say about what Jesus did, but you've rejected what it says about what Jesus said? Because John 3.16 says, we all know, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. Well, two verses later, in verse 18, it says, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have rejected the only son of God. And so that is is part, part of what we've talked about a little bit is you can't just take some parts of scripture and reject other parts. It is either an authority and truth in our life that gives us the revelation of God and who he's calling us to be and who he's calling us to be with himself, or it is, it's just a historical document and there's nothing to be utilized or believed within it. Amen. You, okay. <laughs> Talk about the kneeling part. You've made this point. Oh, yes. It's so um, the, the other part of this question is this, this idea that I get to, like that doesn't sound like my God. You know, I didn't sound like a God I would believe in. And I have said these exact words. I remember being in college, having the debates. I was in a Chick-fil-A, I remember at God's holy realm. And I was debating uh, a friend of mine. And I said those words, I couldn't believe in a God that, and as soon as I said the words, it was like, I don't get to say that. I don't get to determine who God is. God reveals himself to me and I kneel. And the truth of the matter is that any sort of conception I may have of God outside of scripture is one based off of a conception of goodness that the world has given me, that my culture has given me. God is the one who defines the limits of what is right and what is wrong. And he does that by himself, his very identity, his nature. And so all of us must really just see who God is by his revelation and enjoy who that is. I won't take long with this, but for each of us, the joy of God's presence is what makes us kneel. It's not fear of punishment. It's not the threat of hell. It's knowing who he is. It's, I asked Michael the other day, who's that person in your world? When you walk in a room, they just get a look on their face and you can tell they love that you're there. And he's, he smiled at me and he said his daughter. And I don't know what that means about his son, but anyway, his daughter loves him. <laughs> he's like, but, hey dad, whatever. <laughs> The truth of our God is when we base and embed ourselves in the character of God, his presence is our joy. He's our treasure. And, and that's when we make a God in our own image versus the God who is showing us his image. Okay, last question, Michael, comes to you, and it's kind of a core uh, to this whole uh, series of questions. Why trust the Bible? Lots of people seem to struggle with what authority it deserves. Yeah, we, we love this question. Um, and we actually talked about how, okay, this question either belongs at the end or at the beginning, you know, because either you start with this one and you say, here's why all of our answers are going to come from Scripture, or what we've decided to do with this is to talk through the specifics, and we've been rooting all of our answers in the Bible, and now we want to come back around and say, and here's why. 
And uh, so what I want to do, you know, you ask each of us this, you'd get, of course, slightly different answers. Big question, long answer. I'd like to give you the outline of how I personally think about this, because this is a live question for me. And then one more thought from an important passage. Uh, The first thing for me is actually when it comes to apologetics, which is like defending the faith, when it comes to reasoning, uh, reasoned defense for the faith, I don't actually begin with scripture. I begin with Jesus. I begin with the things that I think there's the best evidence to believe. And that is that God created the world and he is good and he made it for goodness. And Jesus rose from the dead. So those are the primary issues that when I can deny all else, I have a hard time denying that those are true. And so the first part of my own answer to why I trust the authority of scripture is if God and Jesus wrote a book, then I'm going to trust it. You know, if God is the creator and Jesus rose from the dead and this is their book, then I'm in. And so I start with what Jesus said about Scripture, and because I trust him, I trust Scripture. Uh, The second piece of things, and of course we could expand each of these, the second piece is I think the Bible does what it says it's going to do. This is the proper way to evaluate something is what does it promise and does it deliver on what it promises? And the Bible presents itself as a book that carries the voice of God in a way that will create a people who worship the God it reveals live by its teachings, and are therefore transformed into this God's image. And I think the Bible does that. I think you're living proof of it. Now, it it doesn't do what it doesn't promise to do. It doesn't promise to make all of us perfect now. No, it never says it's going to do that. It says it's going to begin the transformation process that as we trust its words continues until we meet him face to face and are changed. It doesn't say it's going to transform the lives of people who say they believe it but don't actually trust what it says. You know what I'm saying? No, it does what it says it's going to do. Calls out and creates a people who are transformed into his image as they trust its teaching. That's the second piece. And then the third piece is actually, I think it fits a number of other criteria. I think it's an internally consistent book, which is really impressive given how long it took to write it and how many different authors were involved. I think it meets like historical and archaeological evidence. Those sorts of things are within the third group for me. So if God was creator and Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to trust their book. The Bible does what it says it's going to do, and it meets the other evidence that we would expect. The other thing I want to say, though, is if you struggle with the authority of Scripture in your life, that's not weird. That's actually pretty normal for a human being. And I'd like to take your attention back to the opening pages of Genesis, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. God puts Adam and Eve in a garden, and they have not sinned. Sin has not entered the world. It is uncontaminated. They're enjoying unbroken fellowship with the Father. And he says, you can eat from all the trees except for this one. I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you to trust me to teach you wisdom as you go. But don't go trying to get it yourself. Again, perfect, you know, the innocent world, uncontaminated, uncorrupted. And what do they do? They eat the fruit, you know. They struggle submitting to the authority of the voice of God in their lives, even before sin entered the picture. You and I are coming in after, you know, many, many millennia of sin have continued the contamination process. And so if you're going, yeah, but it's hard for me to submit to the authority of Scripture. Yeah, that's pretty normal, like welcome to the family. The question is not whether it's hard. The question, of course, what you do with it. And that's a hard question, but it's an important one to think through. So these questions are great questions, and we want to continue them. We're really encouraging you that part of the thing I want you to understand, this is three of the four of us that are on the teaching team here. We take this to the elders of the church. Your questions help us uh, decide quite often what we teach, what we preach through, whether this is going to be a Wednesday night class that takes more time for discussion, like on, on the efficacy of scripture, 
versus a 28-minute slot on a Sunday morning, but introducing these topics, beginning the conversations. We're not three experts. These two guys are really, really, really smart, but we're not experts. What we want to present to you is our study of Scripture, the character of God and the revelation of it, is why we've come to these conclusions. We want to challenge you, be in the Word, be in community, and grow in the knowledge and wisdom of who God is. Because that is the beginning of everything, to know the Lord and to understand his purposes for your life. And then in community, grow in those together, questioning and seeking and and becoming who we're supposed to be. We love being in a place where the word of God can be talked about. We may not always agree on everything. We're going to go back to the word and find out what it says and ground ourselves in that. And we hope you'll join us in this journey because that's what we believe the church is supposed to be doing with one another. We're grateful for you. I'm going to pray a blessing over us this morning, and then we'll be dismissed to go into this week knowing God more each and every day. Let's pray. Father, teach us to learn. Teach us to think. Father, I'm grateful that you're patient, and I'm grateful that you don't just wipe us out for doubting, but you let us live in the doubt. You've given us enough about yourself to know who you are. You've given us enough to show us your character. In Jesus, you demonstrated your love and your mercy and your loving kindness. Father, we want to know you more. We want to grow to be the kind of people that live lives that demonstrate what it's like to walk with the King of Kings as we kneel before you with adoration and with appreciation. Pray a blessing on this, this body today as we enter into our world to live out what it means to walk in the light in a world of darkness. We pray all of these things by the power of Jesus' name, by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.